The following sermon is brought to you by ThePreachersVault.com, bringing old-time preaching to a new generation. I like that song, Walking Alone at Eve, and I have for many, many years. It's a great, great song. Since one experience that I had as, as really just a boy, about 17 or 18 years old, I have a hard time not thinking about the late Brother Will Slater who wrote the song, A Brother in Christ, related somehow to the Bonoski family. I'm not sure just how the relation is. But Brother Slater, who passed away some years ago, was leading singing in Fort Worth at what was then the South Summit Church. My dad was seated up here on the platform, and, and I was back here where these young people are seated no further back than David Wright, I imagine, on about the third or fourth row. And Brother Slater led uh, Send the Light. Now, some of you have heard me tell this, so you'll have to endure this again. But anyway, the light has never been sent so fast. I think Brother Slater had decided that we're going to break them once and for all from dragging this song. So we sang Send the Light, and I mean we sang it. In fact, when you got to the chorus, the bass and tenor didn't have a chance to get their part in there because it was moving so rapidly. And when he got back up on the second verse, well, there were a lot of us still struggling with the chorus, and by the time he got to the third verse, it sounded like row, row, row your boat. We had people all over the auditorium in various stages of Send the Light. My dad, who's always been a little bit easily amused, could not suppress his amusement. But Brother Slater was a great song leader and a great song writer, and the one that we've sung is certainly a great song. We're happy to have Sister Alexander, or as she's known to many of us, Sister Alex. It's good to have her here tonight. And uh, we just rejoice because of the effervescent spirit that she has always had, and we got to talk with her just a little while before services tonight for just a few moments, and she's still in possession of that twinkle in the eye and that great smile, and we're so happy to have her here with us tonight. As we announced this morning, I want to think with you tonight for a little while a very simple and yet in one sense profound lesson that we want to call Dream a Dream. And I can just give you the outline and the three points that we're going to keep trying to emphasize over and over again tonight. We want you to dream a dream, tell a dream, and do a dream. And I believe that individually and congregationally, this is really vital, that we dream a dream, tell a dream, and do a dream. And that's it, and that sounds very simple, but that's life-changing. It can change the life of a congregation. It can change the life of an individual. In Proverbs 29, 18, we have that very familiar passage, where there is no vision, the people perish. One translation renders the latter part of that, cast off restraint. And there are those who would argue, and somewhat plausibly, that vision here is the prophetic vision. As you understand, the prophet received from God a vision. And thus, sometimes in the Old Testament, the prophet is called a seer, a gazer, one of the words used for the prophet, though it appears only about 
11 or 12 times, if I remember correctly, and is not as common as another word which essentially means a speaker. But one of the words means a seer, one who sees. So God gives the vision, but then no prophecy of Scripture is of any private interpretation. Peter writes, Second Peter chapter 1, verse 21, For prophecy came not of old time by the will of men, but holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. So God gave the vision, and then the prophet was not left free to his own devices in the interpretation of the vision, but God gave that as well. Jeremiah, what do you see? Well, I see a boiling cauldron or pot with its face to the north. Very well, God explains, inhabitants shall come out of the north. And that's exactly the way the Babylonians or Chaldeans coming up to the north to Haran and then down from the north upon God's people. Jeremiah, what do you see? Well, I see the rod of an almond tree. Very well, I watch over my word to perform it. And though I don't really mean to talk a great deal about this, I just want to explain one possibility in the passage, but I want to use that language and borrow the language to say what it has ordinarily been used to say. That is, where there is no vision in the sense of foresight, in the sense of a great ideal, a great goal. Without that, the people certainly perish. I know that's true. That may be what's being said essentially in the passage. And whether it's this or the other possibility, I know that's true. Where there is no vision, the people perish. There is an urgent need a very real need within the church for those who never wear doubts bandages upon their eyes, but who always see the big picture and can always get the long look. Richard C. Halverson, in the book Man to Man, has said it makes all the difference in the world where you look. It makes all the difference in the world where you look. If you're driving down the highway and you set your eyes 15 feet in front of you, then your driving will be erratic. But if you look on out ahead, of course, ideally, you keep your gaze moving, but you look on out ahead, then you begin to steady at the wheel. And the erratic and inconsistent pattern is lost as you become more consistent and more steady. And Halverson went on to point out that the psalmist lifted up his eyes, Psalms 121, lifted up his eyes unto the hills whence cometh my help. He knew the who back of those hills. And he lifted up his eyes and he looked. In John 4 and 35, Jesus is saying, lift up your eyes and look on the field for they're white already under harvest. Brother Ted Stewart presented a fine lesson on that recently, urging us to lift up our eyes and look. There has to be this looking. There has to be this dreaming of the dream. There has to be this catching of a vision. One writer, a man by the name of Holton, has said that success is not in achieving what you aim at, but in aiming at what you should achieve and pressing toward it, confident of achieving, if not in this life, then afterward. 
There is something to the statement that success is not to be found in achieving necessarily that that you aim at, but in aiming at what you should achieve. And I have long liked the words of James Russell Lowell. Life is a sheet of paper white upon which each of us may write his line or two, and then comes night. Greatly began, though thou hast time for but a line, be that sublime. Now watch this. Not failure, but low aim is crime. You know, I've been trying to say this, and I've said it many times in many ways. And I'm just hoping and praying tonight that it hasn't become trite to any of us. Because I know the need in my life and yours continues to be to dream a dream. And I really believe, let me say this kindly, but let me say it very clearly, that one of our needs as a congregation of a large people is, if I could borrow the language of Joel 2, where the prophet said, your old men shall dream dreams, your young men shall see visions, one of our great needs is to dream dreams and see visions. To catch a great, grand, large picture. To see something of what we individually and what this congregation can be by the grace of God. A great, large, powerful body of dedicated people to God's glory with a great program of evangelism and a great program of edification, teaching the Bible effectively, teaching the Bible in a way that would inculcate the Word upon the tablet of the human heart, teaching at the level of the learner, bringing along and nurturing the new convert, but challenging the student who is maturing in the Word and how seldom we've really done that in our classes. A great program of evangelism, of edification, and a great program of benevolence. I thought about something tonight, and I wondered in my own mind, should I say this or not? I really believe I should. You know, one of the dreams that we've dreamed and talked about is a great benevolent program in which we would really render great service to the aged. Sister Alexander is here tonight, and all our hearts are warm. And wouldn't it just be wonderful if she could just be right here with us and didn't go back down there to long? And I'm just hoping that in the not-too-far-distant future, we can begin to take significant strides toward making a dream that we've already thought about and talked about and prayed about reality. But we need to dream in these other areas as well and think about Evangelism, edification, benevolence. Dream a dream. Great living does start with a picture. There is no doubt about that. Harry Emerson Fosdick, many years ago, wrote a little article that appeared in the Reader's Digest. Now, Fosdick is uh, quite liberal in terms of his doctrinal or theological stance, but the article in many ways was a masterpiece. And he emphasized the necessity of dreaming the dream, and he stressed the fact that great living does start with a picture. There's some Bible examples of this. One of the great ones, really, is in the very purpose of God. Mel made reference to his purpose in his prayer tonight. God, before the world began, before the vastness of our universe ever came into being, 
before he ever spoke the worlds into existence, God planned a plan and schemed a scheme and purpose to purpose. He chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and without blemish before him in love. He goes on to say, having foreordained us unto adoption as sons through Jesus Christ unto himself according to the good pleasure of his will. Ephesians chapter 1, verses 4 and 5. Later in this very section in which he's already introduced the idea of before the foundation of the world, Paul writes, God purposed to gather together to sum up all things in Christ, the things in the heavens and the things upon the earth. Ephesians 1, 9 and 10. The church is a part of this great spiritual blueprint to the intent that now out of the principalities and the powers in the heavenly places might be made known through the church the manifold wisdom of God according to the eternal purpose which he purposed in Christ Jesus our Lord. Ephesians chapter 3, 10 and 11. God had a purpose. God had a plan. God had then a scheme of redemption in mind. Jesus Christ speaks those great marching orders, the militant marching orders, the great commission, those words with the ring of challenge and with a vision of the entire world, go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. Mark chapter 16, verse 15. And he goes on, He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. He that disbelieveth shall be condemned. Here's a great goal. Here is spiritual conquest throughout the world, world conquest spiritually. Here is that goal of taking the gospel to every creature. And great living starts with a picture. Dream a dream. One religious leader, a very, very effective preacher, tells of Jerry Farwell coming to him, a man who preaches for a very large denominational church back in the East. And Farwell said, and he got out his pen, he got out a piece of paper to take notes, and he said, I want you to tell me what to do in order that we can have 1,500 in Bible school. And this other preacher, religious leader, said, you can put your pen back up. You can put your paper back up. What I'm going to tell you is very simple. You just go out in the woods somewhere off to yourself. You just get a stick and you write on the ground, 1500. And then you write it again, 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 1500. 1500. 1500. 1500. And then when you get back home and you see your family, you say, Dear, I love you. 1500. You get up in the morning and you think, 1500. You go to bed that night, 1500. 1500. 1500. Until that goal is the thing that you think about morning, noon, and night. Until that's indelibly implanted within your mind and your heart and your will. And then you begin to tell it to the congregation where you are. 1500. 1500. 1500. Well, that may sound simplistic to you. That may sound a little bit overdone, a little bit exaggerated. But there's something very, very sound 
beneath all of that. Great living does start with a picture. And back of any kind of accomplishment, back of any kind of attainment, back of any kind of achievement, back of anything worthwhile, intellectually, physically, mentally, manually, and spiritually, there must be the setting of a goal. And in our own case, in our own personal spiritual growth, it's really not quite enough to say, well, I'm going to press toward the mark for the goal, or I'm going to press toward the goal or toward the mark for the prize of the high calling of God in Christ, Philippians 3, 13 and 14. This is a good example of the principle we're talking about, but I'm saying here that there are definite and immediate, or in a sense intermediate goals that would stand between us and the ultimate goal, and they ought to be specific. Not just read the Bible some every day, but read the Bible 15 minutes or 30 minutes every day. Not just try to teach some this year, but try to reach five or ten or twelve or however many. And as a congregation of God's people, we need to be thinking in terms of great growth. Great growth numerically. There's nothing wrong with that. I think you know that some of our brethren, some of us, have had a kind of allergy to size. And yet I'm sure you know that in Acts 4 and 4, the number of the men was about 5,000. 5,000 men, Acts 4, 4. 3,000 added to the church in Acts 2, verses 41 and 47. 5,000 men. And our world, with its three and a half billion plus, rapidly moving towards still higher figures, our world is in need of congregations strong spiritually and strong numerically that will press towards some clearly defined objectives in areas of evangelism, mission work, edification, benevolence. And somehow I can envision a congregation which, while not losing that great and winsome warmth that I believe is characteristic of Southern Hills and the spirituality that I believe is characteristic of Southern Hills, without at all losing that, I can envision a congregation of two or three or four times the size, the present size of this congregation. But we've got to think in those terms. I can, I can envision a congregation that not only would support a Pablo Lasaga and a Felix Bravo and other men, but could conceivably support a half a dozen or a dozen or two dozen men out in the field or more than that. And I can certainly conceive of the great benevolent project that has already been talked about. There's already been some preparatory investigation done. I can conceive of that becoming reality. And I can conceive of aged people finding a real haven because of the compassion and concern of Christians. But I want to tell you something. In order for those things to become reality, we've got to dream a dream. There must be a dreaming of dreams and a seeing of visions. And I certainly mean that not in some sort of mystical or supernatural sense, but I mean 
prayerfully in dependence upon the power of God, we need to envision what can be. You want to know why some congregations are little and are going to stay little? Because that's all they've ever thought of being. You want to know why some businesses, and I'm not saying at all that a big business is the worthiest of objectives. I doubt that seriously. But you know why some businesses are just little businesses and that's all they'll ever be? Because they've never thought about being anything bigger. You know why some of us live little lives? Because we've never thought of living the great, grand lives that we could in Christ. I've always loved the statement of Phillips Brooks. Sad will be the day for any man when he's content with the thoughts that he's thinking and the deeds that he's doing. When there is not forever beating at the doors of his heart some great desire to do something larger for which he knows he was meant and made to do. Some churches are little because they thought little. They really plan to be little, and they plan to stay that way. Little not only in size, but in spirit. Oftentimes the two may go together. And some works and projects, some businesses, some lives are little because those back of it all who are doing the thinking have thought that way. You know, our limitations are self-imposed. Our God is able to do exceeding abundantly above all that we ask or think according to the power that worketh in us. And so our limitations are self-imposed. Just remember that. And so congregations of great vigor and vibrancy and size, without the loss of spirituality, without the loss of warmth, without the loss of love and compassion. That's possible. But you have to think in those terms. It doesn't come about accidentally. It does not come about apart from a dream. So you've got to dream a dream. And I think probably every single one of us individually would need to be doing that. You know that Jim Hales left us recently. And I'm sure all of us came to appreciate and love Jim and Melinda. And they dreamed a dream. Jim dreamed a dream of preaching the gospel. It meant pulling up some roots. It meant pretty radically changing his life. It meant stepping out in some areas by faith. He plans, as you know, in September to go to Sunset and go through that two-year program. He dreamed a dream. He told the dream. And he is beginning now to implement all of that and do the dream, and that illustrates what we're talking about tonight. Jerry Farwell was told, now you dream the dream. You eat and sleep and think 1,500, 1,500, and then you go to the people that you're working with and you tell the dream. And now they have many times 1,500 over. Back then, I think they were having 300 or 400 in Bible class. Now where he is, they have many times 1,500 over. But it's a matter of dreaming the dream and then telling the dream. I want to tell a little story here. A story that I heard told, not in person but via tape, from Jack Hiles. And Jack Hiles preaches for what is probably the largest single congregation, largest single denominational church in the world in Hammond, Indiana. And it's a true story. He tells the story of a young man that he met when he was a student, and this young man was a student in a, a little religious school over in East Texas at Marshall, Texas. 
This fellow's name was Joe. And Joe had a handicap. And I debated some about telling this. I'm going to tell it somewhat the way he did. But I debated a little bit about telling it like that because Joe had a rather serious speech impediment. He had a hair lip. And therefore, he couldn't talk distinctly. And in telling this, I'm not poking fun. We've all got some handicaps, physically and otherwise. One of mine happens to be flat feet. I don't know what yours are, but we all have some. And so I'm certainly not poking fun, but there's a real point. In fact, before it's all over, you won't feel sorry for Joe at all. Well, anyway, Jack Howe met Joe. And he asked Joe, what are you going to do? What are you majoring in? What are you going to do? And Joe said, I'm majoring in Bible. I'm going to be a preacher. And Jack Howe was taken back by that. Going to be a preacher. Yeah, I'm going to be a preacher. I'm going to enter the ministry. Well, of course, he couldn't get over that. The fellows on the campus began to joke about this. Have you met Joe? Yeah, I met Joe. Yeah, I met him. Well, you know what Joe's going to do? Yeah, Joe's going to be a preacher. They just couldn't get over it. Well, one day, they were standing there on the campus at a place where some of the sidewalks crossed, and the campus beauty walked by. Jack Howe said she was all our dream. And you know what Joe said? Joe said, I'm going to get a date with that girl, and I'm going to marry her. Well, the boys couldn't get over that. They just laughed and laughed and laughed, and Joe went on to explain that he would ask her right there, that same time the next day, right there where those walks crossed. Well, Jack Kyle said, I was over here in the bushes with some other fellows. And the girl came along, and Joe made a very courtly Lord Chesterfield bow, and he said, may I have a date with you, please? just as distinctly as anyone could say it. And that girl said, Joe, would you say that again? Joe said, may I have a date with you, please? She said, Joe, would you say that again? He said, may I have a date with you, please? She said, Joe, have you practiced that? He said, I sure have. I'm practiced and practiced. That was the only thing that Joe could say distinctly. The only words in the English language that he could say well. But he practiced and he practiced and he practiced till he could say it. And Joe had a dream. He didn't just dream a dream about entering the ministry and preaching. He told it. He told his fellow classmates, I'm going to be a preacher. I'm going to enter the ministry. And not only that, he said, I'm going to get a date with that girl and I'm going to marry that girl. He dreamed the dream. He told the dream. And you get braced for this. He did the dream. He married the campus beauty. And he preached. Jack Howe knows him. And he preached according to the story that I've heard effectively. And I've said that, of course, to say this. What we've got to do is dream the dream. And then you see when you tell the dream. When like old Joe, you say, I'm going to preach or whatever it is. Then you're next out. You've committed yourself. If you're going to shed 20 pounds, it may be helpful if you let everybody know what you plan to do. It puts a little more pressure on. So you dream the dream, and then you tell the dream. This is the auditorium we're going to build. Or this is the benevolent project that we're going to enter into. These are our definite, clearly defined plans. This is what we're going to do. And then that's not all. You've got to do the dream. I'm certainly not trying to say tonight that all we've got to do is imagine ourselves 
though we've been made a kind of a, a square peg, imagine ourselves fitting neatly in a round hole. Or imagine ourselves doing something and maybe it's an unworthy objective. Or imagine ourselves and doing something but we're not ready or willing to pay the price. That's certainly far, far from the impression that we want to leave tonight. But I do want to say that when the dream is coupled with diligence and when the vision is coupled with valor and when we plan the work and then we work the plan, either by itself is not enough. Activity alone, as we said this morning, is not achievement. And sometimes you can see a beehive of activity, but there's not really much significant that's being done. That's why you've got to have some objectives. That's why you've got to dream a dream. And that's why you need to tell the dream. But on top of that, you must do the dream. You must commit yourself to paying the price, to enduring the discipline, to getting down to where the action really is, and doing the dream. Paul had a dream, the pull of a great purpose, the magnetism of a magnificent obsession gripped his life. Paul could say all this for Christ unfurling a map of the first century world. All this for King Jesus. But Paul was one who, as we mentioned this morning, had his own back bared to meet the rod three times. Five times the forty stripes save one. He was the one who was ready to go to Rome even as a prisoner of the Roman government. He was ready to appeal his case to Caesar. He was ready to do whatever was necessary to make that dream come to true. Dream a dream. Tell the dream. Let it be known. This is what we're going to try to do with the Lord's help. And then do the dream. I mentioned Jack Hiles, the most impressive thing to me about the particular message that I heard that he gave was what he said about himself. He said that when he was 17 years old, he was a 92-pound, thumb-sucking introvert. But he decided that he wanted to preach. And he went to his dad, a confirmed and admitted alcoholic, and he told him that he planned to preach. He told him this on the streets of Dallas, Texas, on Commerce Street, about where Ackard or Irvy crosses Commerce right close to a tavern. And he said that his daddy almost beat him to death. Hit him, kicked him, cursed him, and all the while expressing strongly how he hated preachers and how if there was anything in the world that he wouldn't want his son to be, it was a blankety-blank preacher. But Jack Howe said, you can't beat a fellow who has a dream. Old Joe over there in Marshall, Texas had a dream. He dreamed the dream, he told the dream, he did the dream. Jack Howe said, I had a dream. And despite the kind of person that I was in my youth, 
I was determined I would never give up that dream. And despite all the abuse that my dad heaped upon me, I was determined I would never give up that dream. And so he held to the dream. And as I've already said today, he preaches for the largest denominational congregation in the world. To me, it's regrettable that a man of such immense ability would preach for a denominational group. But there is a powerful principle here. And whenever our lives come in harmony with these powerful principles, there are certain things that always result. And so I want to appeal to you as an individual. I certainly don't begin to know what you could be by God's grace. But I know that our Lord could take some Galilean fishermen and could so change their lives, as unimpressive as they were, ignorant and unlearned men, the account reads, Acts chapter 4, about verse 13, so changed their lives that they were used by God to preach a message and to have an impact upon the first century world that has left its indelible mark. Simon Peter was so used. Andrew, silent Andrew, was powerfully used. James and John, the sons of Zebedee, the sons of thunder, were radically changed. And so John comes to be known as the apostle of love. Paul, the persecuting Pharisee, ruthless and merciless in his opposition, becomes the great apostle to the Gentiles. And I cannot but believe that in the heart and in the life of every man and woman, every boy and every girl here tonight, there is given by God great latent and dormant possibilities for good, immense potential. And as Paul writes the Corinthians, what do you have that you've not been given? God gave it. No cause for pride here, but great potential. And I want to challenge you tonight to dream a dream. Make it a worthy dream. Whatever your economic dreams, whatever your educational dreams, whatever your dreams in many, many areas that we might mention, make that subservient. Even if you have great and high dreams there, Make it subservient to a larger picture in which the ultimate dream is serving him to the very fullest and seeking first the kingdom and using whatever blessings you might have economically, educationally, or in whatever other way to his glory. Catch a dream. Dream a dream. Dare, my friend, to dream the dream and dare, my friend, to tell the dream. And then with diligence, with valor, with courage, with firm resolve, and unrelenting persistency. In God's strength and with his help, do the dream. And as a congregation of God's people, greatly blessed, growing, let's catch a vision of still greater growth. Dream the dream. Tell the dream. And with the Lord's help, let's do the dream. If you're here tonight, responsive in any way to the call of our Savior, who said as he gave those great marching orders, he that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. We would pray and we would plead that you would come tonight and obey his gospel. While we stand, while we sing, won't you come?